0: Our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 37. Luke 11, verse 37, through the end of the chapter. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before first wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did he, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in seeing these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you were witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This morning, Lord, speak to your people. Uh, Use Isaac, his gifts, his preparation, his heart. Speak to your people through your word and through this, your servant. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks.
1: On Tuesday, on Tuesday of this week, many, um, many people will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Some of us will celebrate that day because on it, we believe that Martin Luther nailed a document called the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And many people believe that when he nailed it there, it was a a public declaration to the world that he was leaving the church, that he was taking other people with him because of the, the problems that he saw within the church. In fact, we shouldn't really consider this a public document that Luther wrote after all. Many historians actually dispute whether or not he even nailed it to the church door. Here's what we know. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a priest, monk, and theologian in the Catholic Church, sent a letter to his archbishop pointing out what he perceived to be serious problems In the church, Luther was appalled by what he perceived to be the church keeping people from the gospel by the selling of indulgences and by their view of justification. So, what does Luther do? Well, he writes a letter to the archbishop. He invites other Christian thinkers to to argue with him about this. He doesn't publicly shame the church. At least not at first. At first, he privately rebukes the church for keeping people from the gospel. Here's the way he puts it in the letter to his archbishop, Albert of Brandenburg. He wrote, It is the first and the sole duty of all bishops that the people should learn the gospel and the love of Christ. For Christ never taught that indulgences should be preached. How great then is the horror. How great the peril of a bishop if he permits the gospel to be kept quiet. Luther was speaking to the church and saying, You are keeping people from the gospel. And friends, that's what we've been celebrating for 500 years. That accusation to the church as a whole is the foundation upon which this church is built. You know, Luther's not the first person to gather the leaders of God's people together and point out that they're keeping people from the gospel. Jesus himself did it. Um, he did it in this passage that we're looking at today. Uh, this passage that you've just had read before you, Jesus brings this series of woes, this series of chastisements against the Pharisees and the experts of the law in his day. And we're going to dig into those woes in a minute. But before we do that, I just want you to see where this conversation takes place. So look at verse 37. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Here's what I want you to see. This is not a public defamation of the Pharisees. This is Jesus with the leaders, talking to them personally and letting them know about the concerns that he has about the way that they are living and teaching He's saying to them, "You are keeping people from the gospel." And it's in this private setting that he begins to give this series of woes. And that's a word we don't use very often, a word that we don't necessarily understand, but I really like the way the New Living Translation puts it. Instead of "woe to you Pharisees," it says, "what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees." I think that's so helpful. Jesus is chastising them, yes, but he's doing so with this, this view of the future, with this look forward, and he's saying to them, what sorrow awaits. He's doing so in such a way that has compassion on the Pharisees as well. He's pointing them ahead and saying, not just for the sake of the people that you're keeping the gospel from, but for your own sake. See how you are living see what you are doing it's the same thing luther says when he when he says how great then is the horror how great the peril of a bishop if he permits the gospel to be quiet a statement of sympathy and of warning to the people who are being kept from the gospel to be sure but also to those who are keeping them from it now here's the trick of this passage you know, it's easy to hear a sermon about the failures of the Pharisees or the Catholic Church. It's, it's easy to hear a sermon about the problems with the religious elite, but I'd like for us to consider whether or not we need this sermon ourselves. My daddy used to always say, everybody's for taxing the rich until you find out they think you're rich. Well, everybody seems to be for chastisements against the religious. Everybody likes accusations against the Pharisees. But friends, I'd like to submit that I think that we may be the ones that this passage is for. And we need to ask ourselves that question. Am I keeping people from the gospel in the way that I live and in the things that I teach? We, followers of Christ, must evaluate ourselves and see if we are keeping people from the gospel. So let's look at the seven ways that Jesus points out in this text and think about them for ourselves as well. The first way Jesus says we may be keeping people from the gospel is by hiding our sin behind the appearance of righteousness. See what he says in verses 39 and 41. And the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish while leaving inside full of wickedness. You see, you put on the appearance of righteousness, but really it's just a cover for the sin that hides within. And what's the goal? Well, the goal is to convince people that you have no sin. The problem is we're trying to convince people who themselves have sin." In other words, we've created a gospel for the righteous, which is really no gospel at all. right? Jesus is going to say elsewhere that those who are well have no need of a physician. In other words, the righteous don't need the gospel. The gospel is for sinners. But we keep people from the gospel by pretending to be righteous, and not exposing our sin. Friends, how often do we do this? We put on our Sunday best in front of others while inside we let our sin run rampant. We hide our internal sinful lust and addictions. We hide our jealousy and our greed. And we hide it all behind a smile and an attitude that seems to say, if only you were like me, you would be alright. And what are we told to do what we're told to get serious about those internal sins. We're told to give that greed and wickedness over to the Lord and let him cleanse us from the inside out, right? The problem isn't that the outside is clean. The problem is the hidden wickedness within. And Jesus says, stop putting on a show because when you do, you keep people from the gospel, The second way Jesus points out we may be keeping people from the gospel, it's similar. He says we worry more about looking righteous than loving God. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, the Pharisees were making this public scene of their tithing. Not just the big stuff, but to the the smallest of herbs they were tithing. But more importantly, they wanted to make sure everyone knew that they tithed. But all the while, they didn't care about justice and about loving God. The appearance of righteousness had become far more important to them than living for God. What What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Couldn't we just as simply sum that up as loving God and seeking justice? I think we could. And since the passage is talking about tithing, let's allow this verse to dissect our finances as well as the rest of our lives. You see, the Pharisees cared very much about percentages they tithed. That is, they gave 10% of everything. And in so doing, they were able to sort of check a box and declare themselves righteous. But in reality, it isn't that easy. We like to think, I give God 10% and then the other 90%, it's all for me. But Jesus, as he often does, he reinterprets, he helps clarify the law for us. And here's what he says. He says 100% belongs to God. And 100% ought to be used to pursue justice and to love God. It's all His. And we may be able to put on the appearance of of righteousness through tithing religiously, but if we neglect justice and the love of God with the other 90%, then we have 100% missed the mark. And the same is true for every aspect of our lives. We can strive to live up to the letter of the law all we want. And we may convince some people, but God is not fooled. And look what he says we should do. He says, do both. Do both. Let me tell you, we keep people from the gospel All the time, when we act as if we are righteous, but then we look the other way when things like systemic racism and injustice still are running rampant in our country. All the time, we protest things like abortion, but then we refuse to adopt or foster children. We raise our hands in worship, or we stand reverently behind a hymn book, but we never, never let the words pierce into our hearts. We pray over our meals, and then we tell lewd jokes over the same table. We worry so much about the appearance and the perception of righteousness that we have forgot all about the love of God. And Jesus says when we do that, we keep people from the gospel. He goes on to say that we keep people from the gospel by putting our confidence in what other people think. Look at verse 43. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. He says, you love it when you are honored, especially when you are, when you are publicly honored. Friends, I know I do. This has been a struggle for me all week long as I wrestled with this text. All I could think about was that afterwards some of you were going to say things to me about it. And frankly, it didn't matter what you said. I knew when I saw the text that I'd be preaching that it was going to make some people uncomfortable and other people excited. I read the text and I thought maybe I should just back off of the strength of the wording of this text so that people will like me more. I thought that some of you were going to meet me at the door and tell me what a good job I had done and others would tell me what a bad job that I had done. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter because the thing that I was doing is I was worrying about what people thought about me. And if I'm honest, I am still deeply concerned with other people's opinions of me. And that is sin. My title does not matter and your opinion of me does not matter. The only thing that matters is the title that God has given to me and the opinion that he has of me. And he says that I am his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And friend, the same is true for you. If you are in Christ, you need not step back from the gospel. You need not pursue other people's approval or opinion of you. You need only to live into the reality of what you are called in Christ beloved. When we care more about the opinions of other people than we do of God, we leave the gospel behind and we keep people from it. So friends, pray for me. Pray that I would live more boldly into the gospel. And I'll pray the same for you. He goes on. If you thought the woes were going to get easier, you were mistaken. The fourth way Jesus says we keep people from the gospel is that we say, follow me when we ourselves are going to hell. Look at verse 44. He says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So a little bit of context here. In the Old Testament law, if you so much as touched a grave, you were considered unclean for a week. You wouldn't be able to worship, you wouldn't be able to be near to God, so the Israelites are serious about their graves. They mark their graves very well so that you can avoid them at all cost. But Jesus says that the Pharisees here are like unmarked graves that are just causing people to become unclean without them even knowing it. You see, there's two accusations here. The first accusation is that the Pharisees themselves are dead and unclean. And the second is that they cause everybody else to be unclean by hiding their filth and their deadness. Jesus basically says to the Pharisees, you are on your way to hell and you are taking people with you every step of the way without them even knowing it. You are living in unrepentant sin and it is contaminating people all the time. And friends, I... I'm afraid that we may do this as well. If the last three woes are true of us, and I think they are, then it is certainly true that this one applies to us as well. If it's true that we hide our sin under a fake righteousness, then it is certainly true that we have spread that uncleanliness around like a disease. And I might just say to us parents, Mentors, leaders, elders, this is certainly even more applicable to us. You may not know it, but your unrepentant sin may well be being passed on to your children and those who follow you. And this is true in so many ways. Your unrepentant anger and jealousy and passive aggressiveness and crude joking is being passed on and picked up by others and you're making them unclean as well. And if you have never publicly repented of that, they may have never heard anyone say that it was sin. And it's all sorts of things. The first pornographic image I ever saw was when I was 11 years old and my friend found it in his Christian father's garage. And that man's sin was passed on to my friend and on to me. Your uncleanliness and death, my uncleanliness and death is getting passed around. And as ironic as it may be, considering the first four woes, the fifth woe says this, that we keep people from the gospel by requiring them to be perfect before helping, loving, or even knowing them. Jesus says in verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people up with burdens hard to bear, And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You demand of people an overwhelming amount of righteousness and you do nothing to help them with it. You load up burdens, but you won't lift a finger to help. You demand a perfection that you yourself don't follow. And if that perfection isn't met, then you refuse the gospel. But the gospel is for sinners. It is only for sinners. If it weren't for sinners, the gospel would be for no one. But how often is it the case that we either explicitly or implicitly demand a certain level of at least, least perceived righteousness before we would offer real love, or real help? Frankly, I think there are times where the perception at least is that we don't even want the person among us until they begin to live like us. And Jesus says to that sort of attitude, what sorrow awaits you. For you are keeping people from the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us the gospel of Jesus Christ says, come just as you are in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your filth, in the midst of your addictions and compulsions and desires, come and find in Jesus a Savior who loves you and has for you forgiveness and grace and a kindness that overwhelms your deepest sin. And if you think that you are dead in sin, the gospel says you are, but come to Jesus and you will have new life. Friends, we need to be like Jesus. We need to be a people who open our arms and our hearts and our homes and certainly our churches to those who are dead in sin. And when we give them love and grace, we give them Jesus. Are we keeping people from the gospel? Jesus says there's a Sixth way, we keep people from the gospel. We keep people from the gospel by living in the past and not listening to the prophets of our day. Look at verses 47 to 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses And you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Here's what Jesus' point is. The problem isn't necessarily that they're building the tombs of the prophets before. It's that they're refusing to listen to the prophets of their own day. Right. This is the frame he's taken throughout this entire passage. You do a good thing, but it only serves to highlight the worst thing. So you're building the tombs of the prophets. You're doing so in such a way, it's an attempt to imply that you really care about the prophets' words. But in reality, you turn the same deaf ear to the word of God that your fathers did. You know, this sermon started by us remembering the work of the reformers. And I wonder if we don't sometimes do the same thing that this passage is speaking of with them. The Pharisees were happy as could be to point out that the old prophets were correct, but they didn't want to hear from John the Baptist. And they certainly didn't want to hear from Jesus. Guys, it's all good to remember the ways that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and many others helped us return to the gospel. But if we spend all our time listening to them and their critique of the church from 500 years ago, I wonder if we don't miss a very real and a very needed critique of the church today. Luther did a great job of pointing out the problems in the church of the 1500s. But there are new ways that we have trailed from the gospel. And we need to be faithful to look for and listen to and repent of those problems as well. It seems that part of the problem um, here is that it's really hard to figure out who the prophets of our day are. So let me help. Let me give you two ways to identify a prophet. First, prophets are always going to bring the gospel to bear on whatever they're talking about. And second, prophets are going to make you uncomfortable. C.S. Lewis once said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Christianity. I can tell you this, that if you're never feeling uncomfortable, you're not listening to the prophets of our day. Author and thinker Brett McCracken has been challenging to me on this point. He says this, he points out that Christianity is too comfortable and that we're not listening to the prophetic voice if we don't feel a friction between Christianity and partisan politics, regardless of what side you're on. If you are all in on either side and you don't feel a friction between your Christianity and that, you're not listening to the prophetic voices of our day. He says that if you come to church and you always feel affirmed and never challenged, you're not listening to the prophetic voices of our time. To faithfully follow Jesus is to follow Him even when it means that we have to repent and apologize and change. But when we fail to do this, we're actually keeping people from the gospel. I think in some ways this final woe helps explain the rest as well. Jesus says, we keep people from the gospel by withholding the gospel Because we don't really believe it ourselves. Look at verse 52. He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself and you hindered those who were entering. He says that they have removed the key to knowledge. They've removed the key to relationship with God. It's been withheld from the people. Why? Well, because the Pharisees and the lawyers here don't really believe it themselves. And so they've removed it. They've withheld it. Listen, if you don't really believe that God can save sinners, why would you talk to sinners? If you really believe that the determination of your salvation is on your own righteousness, then why would you put yourself in situations where other sinners are around? And if you really believe that, then out of love, right, you would restrict your children from ever engaging with the world either. You would pull back and you would enter an enclave of the religious elite. But if you really believed that you were a sinner Serving a God who saves sinners, then you would talk to other sinners. You would invite other sinners over to your house. You would spend time with them. You would build relationships with them. You would let your children engage with them, trusting that the salvation of our Lord is for sinners. Listen, if you don't know people outside the church, if you don't know people who are not following Christ, then you have taken away the key of the gospel. If you spend all your time with Christians, you are keeping people from the gospel. And if every time you hear the word evangelism, you respond by saying, well, Jesus really said make disciples, and I'm about discipleship. You are keeping people from the gospel. What sorrow awaits you? Why do we do this? Why do we do any of these things? Well, ultimately, right, it's because we don't really believe the gospel ourselves. And I realize that this entire sermon, I've been saying the word gospel without really explaining it. So let me just tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The gospel says that I am a sinner far worse than I could even imagine. And that's saying something. But it goes on to say that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness and new life for me and for any sinner who would repent and believe in Jesus. The gospel is 100% about Jesus and His work. Here's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. And here's the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is not about me. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And we keep people from the gospel by making it about us and not about Him. So what do we, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, we repent. We repent and believe the gospel. We don't do what the scribes and Pharisees did. They were unwilling to repent. They were unwilling to lose power. They were unwilling to let someone else get the glory and not themselves. And they began to look, it tells us, for any way, any opportunity to catch Jesus and ultimately to kill him. And if I may plead with us all, let's not respond that way. Instead, repent. Instead, turn to Jesus On Tuesday of this week, many people are going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We don't celebrate that day because of Martin Luther. We celebrate it because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first thesis of the 95 that Luther wrote says this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. That was true then, and it is certainly true now. The gospel is about Jesus, not us. So let's repent of our desire to make much of ourselves and begin to live in such a way that makes much of Christ. Let's live lives of repentance by by publicly confessing our sins so that we can publicly confess the glory and the awesome saving work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have sinned. Father, we have kept people from you and from the gospel. We have sought our own glory instead of yours. And we are sorry. And we humbly repent. We thank you, Lord, that you save sinners like us. And we pray that you would overwhelm us even now with your grace and your goodness. Lord, forgive and give us new life in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring even more to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray that you would empower us to no longer keep people from the gospel, but to bring it to them and to bring them to you for your glory. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.